This is Kristen Smith, and you're listening to the Destination Begin podcast. The story of my life in a cult starts with my parents. They are both from little towns along the Iowa-Minnesota border, and they were raised in basic small town churches and going to church every Sunday, very basic religious upbringing with um, biblical teaching and basic be a good person, follow the Bible theology. But they both had, um, I'm not sure if at the same time, but they had a more deep religious experience at a Billy Graham crusade. And so after they got married, Actually, before they got married, my dad moved up to Minneapolis and enrolled in Bible school. He wanted to be a minister, and he defied his own dad, his parents, to do that, which um, was very brave of him. And they got married and lived in Minneapolis, and that's how they got up to the big city. (laughs) And my dad finished Bible school and is an ordained minister. He never worked as a minister I thought everyone's mail came addressed to Reverend and Mrs. I didn't know until, I don't know, way older than I should have been, that my dad was a a reverend, and that's why it said that. I didn't know. He performed a wedding for my aunt and uncle, and as far as I know, that's the only thing he ever did with his degree. I don't know why. But my parents, very deep faith. My mom, very deep faith, but also very militant, very set in her ways, my mother is always right about all the things. Very tough woman. My dad is a cupcake. Very deep and fervent faith, but very sweet, very passive, and very, let's not rock the boat. Everyone needs to get along. So my mom definitely kind of ran the show. She still runs the show. And I love my parents. I'm not here to say mean things about my parents, but my parents are who they are. And I don't make any I don't make any qualms about that. I love them both. Neither of them are perfect. Um, And so I'm just speaking honestly. So there's another qualifier for you. I don't hate anyone, okay? I just really don't. Um, So anyway, so they were raised pretty normal, but they moved up here and they went and visited churches and they came across cult church. And in the beginning, cult church, I feel, and I don't know I wasn't born, I feel like it started out rather innocently enough. The pastor and his wife, young family, four kids. They had moved around a lot, very passionate about their faith and started this church kind of in the inner city of Minneapolis. And they had attracted a lot of young, single men and women who some of them were fresh off the streets, fresh out of rehab, having just found a salvation experience and were very passionate about their beliefs. So you have this young vibrant, alive group of people that really were passionate about their faith. And so that resonated with my parents and especially my dad being in Bible school. And so they joined in and never looked back. And the church most definitely, most definitely had an evangelical basis, I guess, Bible basis. But it started out very early that the pastor thought that he had a special level of truth. And so if you're not familiar with evangelical Christianity, the basics of, you know, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, I believe, I'm not really super schooled on all the denominations, but typical evangelicals have a belief in Jesus Christ and salvation through Jesus Christ and follow the Bible as um, as the inspired truth word of God. So everything begins and ends with a belief in the Bible being truth. And the basic tenets of you confess your sins, you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and then when you die, you go to heaven. That is a very Cliff Notes version of evangelical Christianity. So our pastor believed all of those things are true, but he felt like he had a special level of understanding of the Bible that said, it's not so simple. So you also have to die to yourself. You also are called to suffer. And if you suffer greatly and give up all people pleasures and all of the trappings of the world and truly live as a peculiar, set-apart, special bride of Christ group of people, you get to go and rule and reign 
over all the average people who just believe the Bible at face value. So if you believe the Bible at face value and you die, you're you're not going to hell per se, but you're not going to heaven. You're going to get a special reward, but you're going to be ruled and reigned over by the super special group, which he believed that our church was, or at least our church had access to that. So that was kind of where it started from what I understood. And I was there my whole life. So I feel like I understand it. I do Cliff's Note version it down because it's much more complex than that. But the basic thing was you could ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And that was just the beginning. Now the work begins. You have to start dying to everything and suffer greatly. And hopefully, hopefully, no one has any assurance. But hopefully, maybe you will get chosen to be in the special bride of Christ. So the things I heard in church were, I'd watch these older people that were incredibly holy as far as, from my eyes, living really clean lives, praying in church, memorizing, reading the Bible, you know, giving of themselves. And I'd hear them say, I hope I make it. And as a kid, who still stole quarters off the top of the refrigerator and told little white lies and stole clothes out of my sister's dresser and then lied when I was asked if I took them. I was like, I'm screwed. <laughs> I'm screwed. I can't, if these people who are so perfect can't do it, I am never going to do it. So from go, there was such a sense of futility that no matter what I did, it was never going to be good enough. I was never going to be good enough. And it, it was, it was a devastating feeling, especially for me. My personality and how I am wired, I like rules and I like to know exactly the path to success. Tell me the steps, I will do it. Tell me what to do, I will do it. Um, tell me to do all of these things and maybe I'll get something. That's Why would you do that to me? It's horrible. And so that is the overwhelming feeling when I think back over my childhood is this sense of striving so hard and never knowing if I was hitting the mark. And that was the image of God that was put out there was he was always looking at you with one eye squinty, like, I don't really know if you're doing enough. And, um, and that was, that, that was the truth of the church. So to prove we were extra special enough, um, we had to be separate from the world. So that came down to how we dressed. The men were high collars, super short hair, didn't show off any of their skin. Some of them wore t-shirts sometimes, never to church. You always wore a suit and tie to church. But but the most standards were for the women. So women, women couldn't cut their hair. And once you came of age, basically you were taught you should put it up in a bun. I called them a holiness hair bun. My mom had a really big bun growing up like really tall. I mean, the taller the bun, the closer to God, basically. And um, high necks, you know, cleavage was something like you didn't show. That's I can't even imagine what someone would have done if it was like cleavage in church. Um, and then you're supposed to cover your elbows, although that wasn't enforced until I was way older. But um, certainly couldn't show your knees. Your skirts had to cover your knees. And if you had a slit in the back of your skirt, typically that needed to be sewn shut. And so, and no pants, and no shorts, no swimsuits, no um, no showing your skin, basically. Our play clothes growing up, my mom made all of our clothes. And so she made us these things called culottes. And we were allowed to wear these to church events that were picnics or whatever. Um, so they were long, baggy shorts that covered the knee and were super baggy. So they kind of looked like you were wearing a skirt but they were split into two leg holes so that you could run and play and be modest. So we wore culottes, but never above the knee and for sure never skirts above the knee. Um, My mom sewed our clothes partly because we didn't have a lot of money, partly because it was the easiest way to control what was covered on our bodies. So my mom loved calico. Like think of Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I use that example a lot because it's the most accurate. And we were allowed to read those books. And so 
And I loved it. And so my mom would buy pretty calico, like baby blue calico with pink hearts on it and make me a dress with lace and eyelet on it and a white pinafore. pinafore. I was stoked. I loved it. It resonated with my personality. It still does. I still love like childish colors and stuff. And so she just got super lucky to have a daughter that liked all that stuff. My sister did not. She wanted the material that was purple with giant parrots on it or just black. And my poor mom and her just like went round and round when it came to sewing clothes. But anyway, we were also weren't allowed to cut our hair. So the Bible says that a woman's hair is her glory. So we weren't allowed to cut our hair, not even really a trim. The The pastor had four daughters. Um, and so the pastor's daughters, they typically could trim their hair and do a lot of things to toe all those lines, but we weren't allowed to. I am bitter about that one. I hate that. Anyway, um, no cutting of the hair, big hair buns. I never had to wear my hair in a bun, but French braids and braids and stuff were a big thing. Um, so anything to make us look separate from the world. When I was a preteen, the spiral perm was really in for girls the big hair, the big 80s, 90s hair. And while there was nothing sinful about that, I mean, I, it was certainly never preached that curling your hair was bad. In fact, we all curled our hair all the time way too tightly. Um, you couldn't have a spiral perm because it was popular with the world. So it was worldly. That was a term that was used a lot. You know, Don't do that because it's worldly. So as soon as a trend became not trendy, we could do it. So you often just saw a lot of us in the culture walking around in very outdated things with outdated hairstyles because once it wasn't popular, it wasn't worldly. So you'd get a spiral perm, you know, five years after it was cool. So that was kind of how they explained that away. Um, and other churches, they were considered the world too. So if other churches allowed it, we didn't do it. So it wasn't just us against the world, non-churchy people. It was us against other churches too. And for some reason, particularly didn't like Catholic church. There was something about the antichrist or something being linked to the Catholic church. And so I remember people getting up in church and testifying, you know, that was a big thing. You stand up and testify in church saying that, um, there was one woman who said that she had lunch with a lady at work in the lunchroom and she said, I normally don't eat with the unsaved. And she's Catholic. So basically saying, I'm sorry, I had lunch with this Catholic person. And now I hear that in my, I can't believe ugh, some of the things that were said. It just like makes me shake my head. So it wasn't just us against the heathens. It was us against people in other churches. And actually people in other churches were worse um, than the heathens, the unsaved, because the, there's a Bible verse too that talks about being, God would prefer that you're cold or hot, not lukewarm. And if you're lukewarm, he will spew you out of his mouth. And so the idea of being like a Christian and living it kind of sort of was worse than just being someone who'd never heard about Jesus or knew any better. And so I remember just being terrified that I was lukewarm. What if I'm lukewarm? Oh my God. The amount of sleep that I lost worrying about being lukewarm. I can't even tell you. And so other churches were also bad. So if we went out of town, like to Iowa to visit my relatives, we typically didn't go to church with my family members there because those churches were described as they were dead, there was no life, and they were lukewarm. So other churches were not okay. It's really sad. I remember when my great uncle died and one of my cousins was saying that we'll see him in heaven and my mom was like, nah, I don't really think so. Like, because you, like, no one was going to be in heaven except us. That's how fervently it was believed. So that was kind of the basics of how the church was structured. It was also very patriarchal. We were in awe of and taught to respect and treat our pastor with utmost respect and reverence. That stuck with me. I have a really hard time saying anything against him. Even now, um, you know, I was born in that church. Um, I was born and raised under that man. And so no matter what I know logically, 
he's like a parental figure that I can't shake the affection and the loyalty that I feel around him, which is why I think cults are so dangerous because if he were to be alive right now and stand in front of me and tell me to do something, I don't know that I could stop myself from doing it. It's that deep. And one thing I will very loudly and adamantly and repeatedly say about this church is there, as far as I know, there was nothing sexually bad that went on. Some cults get in trouble because there's some level of sexual predatory behavior or misconduct. None of that ever happened in my cult church that I'm aware of. And I'm pretty sure I would have heard of it by now. So while this man, very misguided in his beliefs, as far as I know, was was not guilty of any of those things. He carried himself very, um, he was very concerned with his reputation. He was very concerned with perception. And so I personally never saw any indication of him behaving in a way that would have gone against his own teachings of morality. So I just want to make that very clear because while I don't agree with anything that I was raised with in this church, really, um, I don't want to put anything out that's erroneous either or would lead anyone to believe that. So I just want to loudly say that I don't ever believe that he had a, um, an immoral or any misconduct in that he and his wife appeared to be very happy and he was very well respected. He was a businessman. And so the church was a side thing. So he didn't take money from the church again, that I'm aware of. Um, the church was ran as this like a side thing and he worked full time. And as far as I recall, he was a respected businessman. So I don't know why I'm like sitting here telling you all these great things about him, except to prove the point that I will always love the memory of him. And he was always very kind to me. And when he died, I was devastated and I, it was, and I didn't even expect that. So my bad memories of cult church and my angst does not come from him, even though everything started with him. The, the scars that I have and the painful things that I endured came at the hands of his wife and his daughters because they enforced his teachings and twisted it. And the doctrine became more and more entwined into what we could and couldn't do and the legalistic behaviors and the policing of it was from his wife and his daughters. And being a girl, those people were in charge of our girls' Sunday school classes. And so I had a lot of FaceTime with those women, one in particular. And so the finger shaking in my face and the gritted teeth telling me that I was, you know, that I was defying and that I was rebellious and I had the spirit of Jezebel, those types of things. That all came from the women, from his wife and from his daughters. You know, he didn't get involved in the daily life of the kids and us growing up like they did. So that's probably also why. So the men raised in the church and like my dad, I'm sure could tell stories about him that I don't know. But anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. But it was very patriarchal. So the families that went to the church, the husband was the head of the house, typically the breadwinner. Um, most of the women were stay-at-home moms. Um, it was very traditional, traditional roles. And we had some women who, they weren't allowed to work outside of the home. Women weren't allowed to work outside of the home. And it was frowned upon. Education for the women was not really pushed. Luckily, my mom is very smart. Very smart. My mom is the smartest person I know, which makes me extra mad why she's in a cult that like clearly defies logic. But anyway, um, she's brilliant. And I'm so glad that she really pushed in our house that us girls needed to get educated. And that, yeah, if we wanted to stay home and raise babies all of our lives, we could. But my mom, um, she had to work a lot. Um, and she's like, I'm glad that I could make decent money because I was smart and I had a college degree. Um, she had a two-year degree and she always wanted us to get four-year degrees. She's like, you can get married and have babies. Well, what if something happens to your husband or if he gets sick and you need to work? You need to be able to make a good living. And I'm really grateful my mom pushed that because she was absolutely right. But the women in the church, our church, um, that was definitely not the main belief. The pastor's wife didn't work. The pastor's daughters didn't have jobs. 
they just walked around and policed all of our lives. Um, there's a lot of accountability. So if we were going to be somewhere, we had to tell the church we were going to miss church. There was always attendance taken every church service. So um, quietly, when the church service got started, there was a logbook. And so everybody was noted if they were there or not. And if you missed, you got a phone call. Where were you? Are you okay? It was always under the guise of, are you okay? But no, I mean, like you had to tell them where you were going to be and why you weren't in church. And my dad worked overnight and he had a really hard time going to church on weeknights when we had church. And sometimes he would fall asleep and he got shamed from the pulpit by the pastor for falling asleep during church. I remember being so mad about that as a kid. I saw how hard my daddy worked and like, but yeah, you know, this man worked all day and he sat here and he kept his eyes open and listened to the word of God. And then we have men who sit here and fall asleep and they didn't name his name, but they may as well have. So needless to say, my dad's affection for the church waned a lot sooner than my mom's because my mom took that as like, yeah, shame on my dad. You know, the pastor said it, therefore it must be bad or must be right. So that dynamic started very early in my house where my mom was in charge. My mom did and said everything that she was supposed to, regurgitating everything from the pastor. And my dad really got the short end of the stick. And that was unfortunate. So we stayed in the cult because of my mom, not because of my dad. So my dad has a very beautiful faith and is very kind. My dad is the most merciful, kind, sweet person ever. And he embodies what I think a real true person of faith should be as far as how he treats people and how he views people. He just, he loves and he has grace and mercy. He doesn't push his feelings or beliefs on anyone. And even when he sees people do terrible things, he searches really hard in his mind to try to find some reason why they may have chosen to do that because he just can't except that anyone is just bad. And I love that about my daddy. So, and my mother is just a little different than that. So <laughs> anyway, um, so our life was very, uh, was very sheltered. The, because we were supposed to be set apart from the world, we, we were taught you couldn't have TV. We couldn't go to movies. Satan lived in the movie theater. I remember hearing that. And being scared every time we passed the movie theaters, like that Satan lived in there. That was so scary. I remember walking. I had to walk around the outside of a movie theater to get into a mall. And I was terrified that Satan was going to like reach through the wall and touch me. So he lived in there. And we used to pass an outdoor movie theater on the way to church. It was this big, huge outdoor movie, drive-in movie theater. And my mom made us close our eyes when we drove past so we couldn't see the evilness on the, on the screens. Um, so we also had no TV, but my dad was a little bit of a rebel. And I remember he bought one and for some reason, my mom tolerated it for a little while, but she was super mad that we had a television. That's what we called it, but he would watch PTL. So Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and Jimmy Swagger, he'd turn that on. And my mom really did like that. And I think she felt torn because my dad wanted to watch that stuff. He wanted to watch Christian televangelist. My daddy loves televangelists. My dad just has a big heart and a big passion for the things of God. He always has. And he wanted to watch Jimmy Swigert and all these televangelists. And so she allowed it for a while, but then she made such a big stink about it. He cut the screen off so he could just listen to those programs, but not actually see them. And she allowed that. And so we had this weird TV with the screen sawed off for a real long time. It's one of my favorite funny memories of my dad. So not having a TV was weird. And it wasn't until actually a couple of years ago that I realized that my memories of TV while yes, I missed all of pop culture from my lifetime. So I, you know, I didn't come home from school and watch whatever people watched the Fresh Prince. I cannot sing the Fresh Prince theme song like all of you guys can do. But my mom and my dad had a soft place in their heart for certain old TV shows and movies. 
my dad loved The Wizard of Oz. And so when he would find out that it was on TV, he would take us kids to Kmart and we would sit down in the TV department and we'd watch the movie on the floor. And when my mom found out the Grinch that stole Christmas was going to be on TV, she would take us to Kmart and we would sit on the floor and watch it. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I realized like, huh, I bet other people didn't do that. I just didn't. It was just normal. Like when the space shuttle exploded in 1986, I think it was, um, we got in the car and drove over to Sears and watched the footage in the TV department. When the twins went to the World Series in 1987, I remember watching it on TV at Kmart. That's just what we did when something was big going to be on TV. We went to the store. I just wonder what those employees thought. And he's like this family of five comes in and like sits down for two hours and watches a movie in the TV department. So funny. So <laughs> it's not all bad. See, it was funny. Um, anyway, so that was kind of like what daily life was like as far as standards and all of that. Um, we were taught the government was bad. So any kind of legislation on lifestyle was bad. Schools were bad, obviously public school, the worst. That's where they can put Satan directly into your mind and make you talk about it and make you write papers about it. And so public school was bad, um, terribly bad. Um, organized religion was bad. I already kind of touched on that, but organized religion in general was completely, that was the mark of what God hated. And that was what we were trying to get away from. So those ideas permeated a lot of what was talked about. And so they had a school with the church and I'm the youngest of three kids. And so I got the least amount of the church school, but they had a church school. They used a curriculum packet that was basically self-taught. So you read it, and then answer the questions and fill in the answers, and then you were given a test. The material, the curriculum was pretty legit. Um, it's still in existence today, the, the company that does this school curriculum, but having the school meant they could control everything. So they could obviously control the clothes with the uniforms and the holiness um, standards. That's what it was called. It was called holiness. We were a holiness church. And so if you've ever been around people who go to an apostolic church, they have a similar... Um, standards for clothing and dress. And I think they would say that they're holiness. Um, and so the school was a way for them to control all of those things, also control the education. So science was taught from a creationism point of view. Um, everything was backed up with Bible verses, even English, like diagramming sentences and learning parts of speech. All of the example sentences used were about character and Christianity and Start, um, parts from the Bible. Every booklet had a Bible verse to memorize. We took Bible classes. Um, and so the school was, was run by the pastor's wife and then also volunteered the moms and other women in the church volunteered and helped run the school. And when I went to kindergarten there, I learned to read there. It was excellent education. I, I mean, I did really well and I loved it. I'm very social. I don't know if that comes across, but I love human beings so much. And so going to school was awesome. And we rode to school with another family from Cult Church and we had a lot of fun and I loved it and I did well. And I got to live this great little existence where I could follow all the rules. I could be the model stu student. I could get a hundred percent. I could get big stars on my star chart. Everything about that school resonated with me down to my toes. So I loved it. And unfortunately, at the beginning of my third grade year, the city that the school was located in wanted us to register as a school and given names and addresses of all of the students because that's, you know, the law. And the church balked and said, absolutely not. We will not register. We will not give out that information. It's none of their business. And so they closed the school. I was destroyed. I was like seven years old. So sad. And that's when we became homeschooled. And most of the 
families in our church became homeschooled. And so instead of going to school every day, we slept in, we got up, we did our schoolwork at home. My mom helped us to the degree that we needed it. And off we went. The cool part was we could usually do our schoolwork in two hours and then we had nothing else to do except, you know, work around the house and play and whatever. Um, but that is when life became very, for me, terrible. Um, I'm a happy person. I'm a social person. And that type of a, of being raised like that was awful for me. It was the worst possible way to raise a person like me. And, um, and I'm not faulting anyone. It's just hindsight, obviously. But it was just total isolation. And yeah, I had a sister who was two years older than me, but two years is a lot when you're 10 and 12 or when you're nine and 11. And my sister loved to read. She's not as social as me. She's not as outgoing as me. She did not buy into the cold church stuff like me. Um, she always had one squinty eye open. She fought back. She asked questions. She butted heads with my mom. And she did not want to play with me all the time. I was annoying. I was like, hi, hi, hi. Please play with me. Please pay attention to me. Do you want to play jump rope? You know, <laughs> do you want to play jacks? It was just ridiculous. I was always in her face. So all of a sudden here I am homeschooled and cut off from the friends that I did have. We, we weren't allowed to play with kids in the neighborhood. We had some neighbors down the street and we were allowed to play with them in the front yard where my mom could see us, but we couldn't go to their house. They couldn't come into our house. Um, that was just the way it was. My mom wanted to know absolutely every single influence and ingredient into my life. And so we didn't have friends. I remember I told this story in another episode about just sitting and looking out the window, watching kids come home from school. And that I just, I can't say passionately enough how much I wanted that. I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be a part of it so bad. And I don't know that it bothered my sister. I don't know that it bothered my brother. We started homeschooling my brother's senior year. So he only had one year of that to endure. Um, otherwise he, he went to school up until that. But for me, it was devastating. Um, and so I, I just had to find some way to cope. And that is when I started to gain weight. That's when I turned to food as my entertainment. It was the only thing I had to look forward to. It was reliable. It always made me feel good. And that was when I started gaining weight. It was not long after we went to homeschool. Plus the structure of the day. When you're going to school, you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. When you're homeschooled, you just you don't have structure. My mom did a good job with, you know, supper time and whatnot, but you don't have structure. You can do whatever you want. It's not great. It was not great for me. Now I'm hyper-structured, but I learned I had to be because I got nothing done being the way that I was raised with no structure. It was not good for how I'm how I'm built. Um, but so two things happened. I started eating to entertain myself. And because of that, I started gaining weight and I learned that in order to have favor, that I had to find a different way other than my looks. Um, it was at that time, you know, I stopped being the cute little girl and I was the awkward preteen stage and then I got fat. And so I learned really quick that if I showed more interest in, in church, which was genuine, um, it's, church was full of rules. And if there's one thing I love, it's rules. And, um, I was determined to figure this thing out and I wanted to go to heaven really bad. I mean, I wanted to go to heaven so bad. And so when, when things were talked about in conversation, pretty adult level doctrinal conversations, um, I was terrified. Like one belief was that you had to be baptized of water and fire to go to heaven. That's in the Bible. And I heard that and I was like, wait, wait, what? I had gotten baptized at, you know, like 10 or 11 by dunking in the tank and at, at church. We didn't baptize babies. You had to wait till you wanted it. You had to say you wanted to be baptized and then you got baptized. That was how we did it. But then there was this whole fire component. I'm like, wait, what did you just say? Fire? I don't like fire and I don't like pain. Do I? What? And um, that terrified me. We were also told to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is stories about people in the prior centuries that died for their faith and how they died, like burned at the stake. The worst one to me was the people that were skinned alive and dipped in salt 
or the people who had a wet wool thingy wrapped around them and then left to wander so that as the wool dried, it shrunk and strangled them to death. I mean, heinous, terrifying things was put in my head at starting at age eight with the, with the pastor's wife saying, you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to die for your faith. Do you love Jesus enough to die for your faith? And so here's me laying in bed at night going, I don't know if I love Jesus enough. I've never met the dude. I, I, I know I would have to because if they asked me that and I said, no, I'll go to hell, but I don't want to get burned at the stake. And I mean, this, I would get sick to my stomach, just tortured with these thoughts. And so I took it all very seriously. So I would read my Bible more. I would memorize more scripture. I would tell on my sister because I thought that would get me points. My sister was very much a rebel. She would cut her hair, cut bangs, and then lie about it saying that her hair just broke off. And my mom didn't punish her super hard because because my sister questioned, she was labeled as an at an early age as not being chosen. And since I was so good, I was chosen. So I got a lot more favor at church because I put in all this work and I was angelic and followed the rules. And my sister was, I was like, why? This is stupid. Or like, pastor's daughter does that. Why can't I do it? And it was just like, oh my gosh, my sister had a bad spirit and she was critical. And so she wasn't chosen. So my mom didn't bother a whole lot with correcting her as much because I think in part of her mind, she thought of her as a lost cause. But me, you know, I was going to turn out. I had a heart for God. So my sister got away with some stuff that that I didn't. And I remember this is one time. This is one of my favorite stories. My, As I got fat, my face got fat. And I already have a giant forehead. And one of the girls at church had cut bangs. And her parents let her have bangs. And this is when bangs were a big thing. You know, the big bangs. And the pastor's granddaughter had bangs. You know, I'm, still, I'm, I'm really salty about that. The pastor's granddaughter's and the pastor's daughters got away with so much stuff. And then like, we couldn't still makes me mad. I'm 41 years old and I'm still salty that Heidi got to have bangs and I didn't. But anyway, I fixed that. So my sister was like, hey, just cut your bangs. And I'm like, I can't, I can't cut my bangs. Mom will get really mad at me. I'll get spanked. And I'll never forget the way her look, her face looked. She looked at me and she said real conspiratorially, a spanking lasts like two minutes but bangs are forever. <laughs> and I was like, you are right. I mean, and that was the push I needed to go in the bathroom with her with the orange handled scissors, measure and part my hair and get it perfect, the perfect little fringe, <sighs> and then cut it. And it, I mean, it looked terrible. But Rachel helped me, and then and then I had to walk out of the bathroom, and I was like, oh, I can't do this, and I did. And I don't remember if I got spanked. I know I got ridiculed. My mom was like, that fuzz on the front of your face looks terrible. And for the first few weeks, she made me pin them back and glue them down with hairspray, and I think she just got weary of it. And I think even my mom could see the double standard of like the pastor's granddaughters running around with bangs. And so she stopped fighting. Plus, I looked stupid. I think she probably thought that the way I looked was punishment enough. And so that's how I got bangs. And that really encompasses how my sister um, kind of operated. And she always had the stones to push, push the envelope. And I did not. So um, one other time, she wore an undershirt. So back then, you know, we were little kids. An undershirt was just a white tank top and it had a little bow in the middle and it wasn't sexual. It wasn't sexy. It was an undershirt. It wasn't even a tank top. But she had worn it under a shirt or under a dress and she dared to unbutton the top button so that little bow was showing. And my mom flipped a lid and I'll never forget the way my mom said this word. She said, do you want to look like a slut? And it was like a two-syllable long word, slut. 
because the little bow was showing. And I just remember thinking like, mm, Rachel's being a slut. I don't know what that word means. I'd never heard it before, but it's not good. And uh, my sister didn't care. My sister defied all of those things. And now in hindsight, I'm like, Rachel, you're my hero forever. Because she did. She dared to say this is stupid um, way before I – well, anyway. So as we grew up, a lot of the families in the church left for one reason or the other, mainly because we weren't allowed to question. And we had some intelligent people in the church who would ask a question, like, eh, especially as it pertained to like the church's finances or things like that. We were encouraged to tithe and they took up special offerings. And I know my parents gave a lot of money and a lot of the families gave a lot of money and it wasn't excessive. Like I said, I don't believe our pastor even took a salary and I would never I would never want it out there that there was any misappropriation of money because as far as I know, there wasn't during my childhood. Later on, there was all kinds of crap. But, um, you know, as a kid growing up, as far as I know, there wasn't any of that. But there were intelligent people who would ask a question now and again, and they were entitled to because they were giving their entire lives to this organization. Oh, wait, no, we weren't an organization. To this cult. And so they didn't like that. Nobody liked the questions being asked. And so sometimes they would leave. And with them would be the kids that I played with, my friends. And as they left, and I would just be told, you know, you're not allowed to talk to you know, your friend anymore. They left the church and be like, what? And you never got the whole story. We never got the whole story. But it was always something like they had a critical spirit or – you know, we always knew that they weren't a part, going to be a part of the bride and they weren't willing to pay the price. But finally it's been proven. And like they, these people would disconnect their phone number because like the backlash was hard and terrible. And I just feel so bad for those people. You know, my parents never left. My mom still is there. So I've never experienced that. I only experienced it when I left. And I, by that time I didn't care. And I don't think anybody cared that I left. But growing up, that was a big deal. And so they were cut off some of these people worked together or were even related and they were cut off and and then they were trashed and they were bad and everything that they ever did or said was bad and when they were talked about it was with, it was with this like so sad what happened with them and so my friend group dwindled and dwindled and when i would cry cuz you know i was already lonely and isolated i would cry and my mom would cry with me and she would say yeah you know i don't have any friends that's what is required of us. God needs to be our closest friend and we need to go to him for everything. And that is one of the most painful parts of how I was raised was this idea that we're supposed to be alone and suffer. And, you know, my mom was really hard, but I often wonder how different my mom would have been if she had had friends, if she had not been taught that she needed to suffer so badly because suffering like that makes you hard. It just, it does. It does. And so all of those friends left and moved away. And that was part of the experience was you need to suffer and you need to make God the only thing that matters to you. And um, that was a really hard thing for me, especially with my personality and who I am. So we moved when I was 13 from down in the city up to a house really close to Cult Church, which made it possible for my sister to start courting. We called it courting, not dating. But my parents allowed her to court a guy in our church. And my dad had been friends with him. My dad really liked him, respected him. My sister was only 15, and he was an older guy. And they let them start spending time together in our house. Like he came over for dinner all the time. And that's how courting worked is your parents kind of decide like, this is the person you're probably going to marry. And you get to know each other within the parameters of your households and supervised. And it's stupid. Anyway, she was courting him. And by the way, the opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own. And if you don't agree with them, that's totally fine. But these are my opinions. Courting is stupid. So they courted and 
my sister, you know, at 15 and 16, she'd kind of had it with this cult church thing. Like I said before, she never really bought into it. And my sister was definitely given a lot of narrowed eyes and my sister narrowed her eyes right back. (laughs) And so one morning I came home from working all night with my dad. We cleaned office buildings overnight and the routine was I would come home, bang on my sister's door for her to wake up so she could do her homeschool. And then I would go to bed and sleep until I got up to do my homeschool. So same routine that morning. It's a Friday morning. I'll never forget it. I banged on her door. No answer. Banged on her door again, like any annoying younger 13-year-old sister. Get up. You need to do your schoolwork. And she didn't answer. So fine. I took matters into my own hands and found the spatula that I'd used a billion times to break into her room. You know how it is when you're a kid and you know exactly how to jimmy every lock and you know which spatula to fit into the door frame to pop open anybody's bedroom? So did that, got the spatula out, <laughs> popped open her door, and her room was empty. The, clo- the closet was open and empty. The drawers were hanging open and empty. And on the bed was a stack of letters on yellow legal pad paper. I'll never forget that scene. It is burned in my mind. And of course, I freak out, dad, you know, call for dad. He comes in, assesses the situation. I have no idea what's going on. It didn't occur to me at that moment. She left with her boyfriend, but that's exactly what happened. They eloped. They took off. Um, There had been some kind of crazy in the middle of the night sneaking out with all of her things and they went away to get married. And that was my sister's take it out. And it was... It was such a huge, giant event in our family and in the church. It caused so much drama and pain and stress, and it was awful. And they didn't come back for maybe a week. They were just gone. And the letters detailed that they left to get married, and my sister basically just said, I'm done with this. Um, I don't think I got to read the letters. There wasn't one to me (laughs) that I remember. It was devastating to me. I, she was my ally and immediately there was war between her and my parents. And she marched into church the first Sunday after she married him and in pants and makeup and earrings and just basically saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm here and I, you're all, this whole thing is stupid. I'm not doing it anymore. And it was war. She was ostracized. She wasn't allowed to be around any of the teenage girls. Um, my parents were essentially punished for having a daughter who did this. And the whole thing said to me, you better follow the rules even closer. You do not want to be the object of scorn. I never wanted to be in the position my sister was in and having all that anger directed at me. It was a huge, huge message to me of like, be perfect be perfect. Because then the comparisons really started of like, at least Kristen is, is good. And we're going to get one good kid out of this. And I mean, the pressure was on and I was all for it. I did not want what happened to my sister to happen to me. And of course now in hindsight, I'm like, my sister is my hero. But at the time it was, it was like, yep, I'm, I dug my heels in. I became the most culty, cult church, cult church person I could be uh, from then on. I mean, I went deep. Legitimately, I was like, nope, this is what happens when you turn your back. It was awful. And so I ate more. I read my Bible more. I was more fervent. I tried to witness in the streets. I tried to witness to everybody. I tried to bring everyone to Jesus. Um, And that was how I handled that. Not long after that is when I went away to college, and um, and there I didn't fit in. I was like the only person at college in a jean skirt with weird hair, and like it was an evangelical college, so I came in with my guard up. Like all these people are evangelical Christians, but they're not, you know, they're not in the cult, so therefore they're they're all wrong. And I didn't make any friends. I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know how to be a classmate. I didn't understand school. You know, homeschool, you read the stuff, you answer the questions, you take a test, you move on. In college, you read the stuff, and then you go in class and they tell you everything you read. 
So I was really confused. So I did really well in college because it was so redundant. (laughs) So in college, that's when I met my ex-husband in a chat room. (laughs) After about a month of not being able to like integrate myself into the college community very well, I gave up and I went to the computer lab and I started sitting in Christian music chat rooms because I wasn't a rebel. I wasn't going to go look at dirty things, but um, Donnie was in there promoting his Christian death metal band. And I was there to say, um, excuse me, Christian death metal is an oxymoron because Christianity is about life. (laughs) And that was how our discussion started. And um, he was in North Carolina and he was a bad boy. um, And I was a lonely, disillusioned cult church girl. And he was attracted to me because I was different and because I could stand up for myself And I was attracted to him because he was attracted to me. (laughs) That's the long and short of it. And again, hindsight is just so clear. He moved up to Minnesota. I quit school. We got married. And I left the church, basically. And everything went bad for me. And I was taught in cold church that if you leave the church, everything goes bad for you. So don't leave the church. I mean, that was really the depths of the brainwashing um, to keep people there was if you leave, bad things happen. And they were right because people would leave. They would not understand how to manipulate their own thoughts into a logical and happy place without being told what to think. They didn't know how to view the world outside of the cold church or how to read the Bible anymore. And so, yeah, people's lives did fall apart a lot of the time because the idea of living a life of faith was a bunch of baloney. We weren't taught faith. We were told what to believe. And faith is believing without seeing. And faith is investigating and choosing to to believe in something that is greater than what you can comprehend. And we were taught, no, here's all the answers. This is why you stay. This is why we're right. This is why everyone is wrong. Outside of this, you are lost. And so, yeah, when life got hard outside of cold church, you immediately remembered all of that of, wow, it didn't take long. I left the favor of God and now everything is going bad for me. And it was interesting because bad things happen to people in cold church too. But when it did happen, it was explained away of God is testing you. God is testing your faith. This is a trial, this tribulation, and you're supposed to suffer. But as soon as you left the church and that same thing would happen, God is testing you to tell you to go back or Satan how has control over your life. That's why bad things are happening. So here I am. I marry Donnie. He's terrible. My life is terrible. And it's like, I better go back to church because I got to get back under that protection of the church so that God will change my husband into the man of my dreams. And when I went to the pastor's wife to say, this is terrible and I'm being hurt and et cetera, the answer wasn't, we're going to help you we're going to get you out of there or we're going to help you. It was, you need to go home, be submissive, keep your husband happy, come to church. Even if he gets mad at you, come to church and God will change him. It's dependent on how fervent you are to the Lord and how faithful you are. So in other words, your husband will stop abusing you if you're good enough. And if you come to church and you're fervent enough. So that was the message. And I'm not the only one they gave that message to. There were other women in that church that were abused and that had terrible marriages. And they were told, don't leave your husband. Come to church. Even if he tells you you can't, defy him and God will take care of your husband. Don't go to some other church with him if he wants to go to a different church. Don't sell out. This is all on you. So very dangerous, very terrible. I am still mad about that. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of things I'm still mad about. But when I finally left the cold, it was pretty anticlimactic. I stayed and dabbled. I was there. I wasn't there. I started to have lifestyle changes. You know, when I got married, my ex-husband was not about this whole no TV, no movies thing. So we had a TV. We went to movies. I started wearing pants. I wore makeup. I was always more scared of my mom than the church. I would wear makeup, and then if I saw my mom, I'd wash my face real fast. And I finally got my ears pierced. I think I was 27. And I wouldn't wear earrings around my mom for years because I didn't want to disappoint her. And I still have some remnants of that, and I'm 41. I would say 
it wasn't until more recent events in my life that I finally shook the final chains of my mom off of me as far as caring about what she thinks of my life. But cult church and my mom very intertwined. And so I was less afraid of the cult, more afraid of my mom as I became more of an adult. Displeasing my mom was something that I think became my religion once I left culture. She was still the loudest voice in my head, even when I wasn't attending there. And when the pastor, the original pastor passed away, he turned the church over to his, well, right before he passed away, he turned the church over to his son-in-law and his son-in-law should not be a pastor. He's just not articulate. He's not smart. I'm not being mean, just the facts. And his family just behaved in a lot of egregious ways. And his character also very much in question a lot of the time. So what the first original pastor had going for him was typically living out what he preached. And unfortunately, the next generation had a harder time with that. And so there was hypocrisy. There was a lot of questions about money. Um, We had some elderly people pass away and leave their money to the church and to them. And there's always been questions that have never been answered about that. So unfortunately, their reputations took a big hit and even more people left because there were questions being asked that were legitimate. And I could no longer back up any of it to my then husband and to anybody. It was just a total farce. And um, since then... (laughs) Since then, those people have actually left the state. They sold everything, took all the money, and left, and whatever. The people that are left, I don't know what they think of that, but ultimately, I think it was just a matter of time. And I I wrestle with, with how much to say because I have opinions, and I don't have facts about a lot of things because I stopped paying attention and caring. I care because my mom still goes – to what's left of the church and still is incredibly loyal to these people. And I'll never understand it, but that's her choice. Um, so so all that to say, leaving became a very anticlimactic, kind of a slow role as I was ending my marriage. There was no support in that church for divorce. And by that time, nobody really understood what was going on in my life. And so it was an easy way to also make it kind of a clean break from that whole environment. So the process after leaving really became about trying to figure out how to function in the world and with my faith outside of that I'm being told what to think idea. And I abandoned my faith for a long time. I just turned off my brain to all of it because I was tired and I was confused and I simply couldn't handle trying to figure it all out. And a lot of people who left our church and my peers, I feel like had the same problem, a lot of confusion and fear and anxiety. I think there are a lot of people that used to attend my church that are on anxiety medications, rightfully so, because there's so much anxiety when you've been told from the time you were born what's going to happen to you if you leave. Even if you leave and logically you understand that that's a bunch of garbage, it's so deep in your soul that it's it's terrifying. What if they're right? That's the thought that that hits me when I'm tired and late at night when I'm trying to sleep so many times. That thought comes out of nowhere. What if they were right? And the Bible verses and the examples that were used to keep us in fear come out. And it's really hard to fight that. And you have to use logical thought and you have to reason your way out of it. And when you're tired and it's the middle of the night, it's really hard. And it's, it's a form of, I think, lifelong torture that is just a side effect of being raised that way. And it's something that I could talk to my parents about that and tell them that that's a reality, but they chose the church as adults. They had a normal life, a full childhood, et cetera. They chose that as a, as an adult. Those of us who were born and raised into that, those messages started from the time we were infants. And it's different. There's a whole generation of us that have had a completely different experience with cult church than the parents who brought us up there. And I'm glad that I am in touch with some of my friends I grew up with. We reconnected throughout the years. And 
at least there are some people who can understand and relate to those deep, dark moments of fear. And if the leadership of Cold Church could hear this right now, they would say, yeah, that's the voice of God. You're never going to be at peace because you left. And they're, I'm sure, incredibly smug and happy with themselves that that I can say out loud that I'm haunted by that because they consider that to be truth. And I guess that's just the difference between them and me. <laughs> at the end of the day, they're gleeful. They're gleeful at the idea of anyone suffering. And I'm glad that I don't have to feel that way anymore. So I guess to close all of this, the whole point of doing this podcast was to simply tell the story. It's a big part of my story. And it has shaped who I am. I'm a rule follower. I'm a people pleaser. It's really hard for me to assert that I matter. It's really hard for me to truly believe that I matter. It's really hard for me to find validity in me as a human being. We were just taught so much to die to self. And when I think back, I'm, I'm angry. This Recording this has made me very angry. They're bad people. And... My family and I, we all experienced public shaming at the hands of these people. These people who did really egregious things, but were never publicly shamed. They were able to skirt it. The things that I was publicly shamed for and punished for are things that the pastor's family, and especially granddaughters, grandkids did. They just were never called out and they were never shamed for it. And that makes me mad. Injustice makes me mad like it would anyone. My parents were punished and shamed for the things that us kids did that were, you know, considered against the tenets of the cult and against God. And none of the pastor's family were ever shamed for the things that their kids did. And the way that they covered it up, just like in any type of organization, it's not, this isn't the only group that, that this is the story of. It's very common. And so it makes me mad makes me angry and I want to hate them. I want to hate them really bad. And I did hate them for a while. And right now, after saying all of this, I feel hate bubbling up inside of me. But hate steals all of my joy. It steals who I am. Hate and bitterness, it doesn't hurt them. It only hurts me. And through letting that go and truly focusing on the good that came from being raised that way, the discipline, the morality, the character the ability to endure, <laughs> all of those things, that, that's what makes me happy. I'm free. I'm out of there. I get to live my life. I get to not hide. I don't have to sit behind the curtains and peer out and look at the world and wish that I was a part of something. I feel completely free to open my door and run out and say, hi, hi, here's me. And me is enough. And me is good. And I think I was created by somebody who is really stoked that I am me. And that's how I choose to live. I choose every day to lay it down and to go and live. And that's that's how I redeem it. That's how I make it matter. That's how I make it count. I go and be the most me that I can possibly be. And every day, more and more of that old stuff falls off and more and more of the new me comes alive. And it's a beautiful process. And I get to make mistakes and I get to blame myself for my mistakes instead of blaming Satan or thinking that God is just trying to torture me. I get to learn human lessons, take human credit for my successes and and take my own dose of human guilt for when I screw up and learn from it. And I'm unstuck from all of that. I'm free to live my life. And Forgiveness is not a moment where you say, I forgive, and you move on. Forgiveness is a process, and it sometimes has to happen every day. I'm going to have to go to hard work this week, putting all of this out of my mind and choosing again to forgive and to let it go and to live my life, and it's worth it, and I'll do it. I'll do it as many times as it takes. I won't let any of those people or any of those experiences steal any more moments of my happiness and my joy and my ability to go and live. And that is truly how you get unstuck. The end. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode. 
My tagline is to start now, slay hard, and repeat. And as it relates to this episode and this part of my life, it applies. Start now, forgive, forget, lay it down, and repeat. I have to repeat every day. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It would really mean a lot to me if you would share this on your social media, subscribe on iTunes, follow on Spotify, leave a review. It would mean a lot to me. I really am making this podcast in the hopes that it can reach people who need to hear my story and that need to get unstuck. I want to be a part of that process. You can email me, Kristen at destinationbegin.com. And I'd love to have your comments and feedback on my Instagram as well. Destination underscore begin. That's all I have for you this week. Have a great week.